It's not brain science. It's rocket surgery. This is Gug. <laughs> the Incomparable. Number 294. April 2016. Gog, Gog, welcome back to The Incomparable's Rocket Surgery, where we look at a weird, bad science fiction movie from a particular decade. We have covered the 2000s. We have covered the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, and the 60s. What was left? The 1950s. We are we watched 1954's Gog. Gog. I'm Jason Snell, Gog. and I'm joined by these fine rocket surgeons, Glenn Fleischman. Well, I think we're posing the question, Gog or not tonight. <laughs> David Lore. Uh, hi. We, we watched Gog. <laughs> Brian Hamilton. Gog, help us all. Oh my God! And Steve Lutz. What if? What if Jason? What if Gog was one of us? That's the question that I think this movie poses. Just a robot on a bus trying it to answers. make its way to the nuclear pile, flailing wildly on a bus. Dear Gog, it's me, Magog. Pulling out the safety rod, trying to find its way home. Are you there, Gog? It's me, <laughs> <Yeah>. Margaret. <laughs> so Gog, uh, available on YouTube, I believe. God. Also on um, Amazon Prime Video at the, at, as we record this. Come for the free shipping. Stay for the really crappy old sci-fi movie. Free! <laughs> Amazon Prime. Uh, 1954 film by, uh, among others, the producer and, base, and story credit to Ivan Tors, who you may know as the creator of Flipper. Step right up for Ivan Tors, a tour of all the Ivans in the land. They call <laughs> he was not crazy Ivan. He was serious Ivan. Uh, this is a film, um, I, I, we're going to walk through the plot, uh, and boy, there is one. <laughs> um, there is so much plot. There's a lot you need to it's learn just, about space of... and science, and this film is going to show you. But there is no plot here. There, oh, there is so much science, there's nothing. But like, that's much. not plot. But that's just, it's a no, lecture. It's a mystery, Steve. It's a mystery about who is killing, uh, who is, uh, who is uh, ratting out the scientists and killing the scientists at a secret uh, desert base. Basically, what we've got here is is we've got what is basically an early slasher film with a sci-fi sort of uh, wrapper mm -hmm. around it. Yeah, you, well, you've got you've got enough of a plot for a TV guide logline, and then like ninety minutes that's exposition, the motion picture. Well, I mean, we start we start with a killing, which is you know it's classic Two slasher killings. film, yeah. right? We, we start with a frozen monkey, and then there's like thirty five minutes of just explaining all the things that they're going to use to kill the next <laughs> batch of people. Indeed. So my first my first note in this film is a monkey is injected. Yeah, <laughs> Peppy. Pepe. Boy, it starts with a very nice sequence of space agey rocket paintings over the credits, which That's I thought true. was, was lovely. No it was, I was nice confused by that. until the story started. My, my first note is here at Bird's Eye, we flash freeze our Reese's <laughs> monkeys so they're fresh from farm to table. We should we should mention in the titles with the with the space music and the space paintings. There's also a credit for the what is it executive producer in charge of scientific research. Scientific yeah. research. Get every single cent out of his salary. <laughs> yes. Let's not forget, by the way, that the scientific and electronic equipment for this uh, podcast was furnished by Bendix Aviation Corporation mm -hmm. and Minneapolis Honeywell Regulator Company. So, I, I think I think the executive producer for scientific research kind of slacked in a few few segments, but you I think? Do, I do think the dials didn't get enough credit. The dials, the gauges. They, they shot it in 15 days on two sets, so it's not, you know... And it shows. It no, shows. No, in 3D. Oh, boy, they shot shows. it in 3D. Yeah, you'd never, you'd never know this was a 3D picture when it starts with a lady pointing hypodermic at you <laughs> and coming in, you know, for the kill. There's that moment where they've got the people on the little merry-go-round thing that's supposed to test gravity that I thought, oh, there's your 3D movie right there. 
Yep. Um, so a monkey is injected in yes. a in a very large room that can be frozen and heated and frozen at, very rapidly for, for such a large space. We are in an entirely wheel based science lab, which mm-hmm. is it's unusual <laughs> yes. even for the time. Yeah. We, I thought 1954 mm. they discovered more than the wheel. They've helpfully they've helpfully labeled the left wheel left unit and the right wheel right unit, and the noticeably larger center wheel is labeled main control. So you don't get confused <laughs> no. with the the overabundance of wheels Wait, in the test area. Are, are we just confused? And this is actually an advertisement for Bakelite. Maybe the whole movie is actually just a demo of what you can do with it. There's a, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of labels. So you could also say that this is for, for an advertisement for label makers. There's a lot of labels. There are many uh, labels. There's, there's a, a windshield wiper. The windshield wiper was the best part. <laughs> they're, they're yeah, adding, so unexpected. The, so, so the room that freezes and heats. Of course, there's condensation. Although the condensation sort of happens suddenly, suddenly after it's already gone from room temperature to zero degrees in about four seconds. Then there is condensation, and they have a windshield wiper that really does That's add to awesome. the pathos of what uh, as they freeze the monkey and then later. Accidentally freeze a, a couple of human beings and well, kill them. When you them. test subjects are monkeys, it's always wise to have a windshield wiper on your viewing window because you never know, uh, you know, what the little guy's going to uh, toss. That's at true. You, you got to keep well, it. And, keep and the thing, the thing that's impressive is when they when they thaw the monkey back out because they don't kill it; they just freeze it. Yeah, that was they, sweet. they do literally shock the monkey. They do shock the monkey. He's Twice. three different times in three different places. They shock his heart, but they also shock his brain. I don't think that's how that works. I, I don't well, think and then he, they shock his central nervous system separately from the brain somehow yes the executive producer for scientific research said so i was so disturbed by that because he seemed to already be alert and moving around and then they just sort of shocked, shocked him, him again times like yeah. right. thank god there were some gauges that showed us how alive he was mm. yeah but i couldn't figure out which side of the window the windshield wiper was uh-huh. on. i couldn't because, figure that out either because it should be on the inside yes. where uh-huh. it's probably getting frostier but then when the scientist goes inside the room after the monkey has left uh, well, after the monkey's taken away, it's not like the monkey just leaves. No, the monkey's fine. <laughs> monkey grabs his suitcase, puts on a hat, and takes off. No, you know, then he gets trapped in the room. Yeah. Spoiler! Toodaloo. Spoiler! The door closes behind him, and he starts to freeze. So. That's right, and he starts tapping at the window, but it's not getting in the way of the windshield wiper. Yeah, yeah. So it must it's on be the on the outside. Early CGI. But why? It's, it's maybe it rotates or something. The, the door closes. So the, the scientist goes in to check on the monkey freezing room, and the door monkey closes behind room. him, invis- in, as if by, by an invisible itself. hand. And I thought, uh, well, this is very exciting. There's an invisible, you know, invisible murderer on the on the science base, and we're going to learn robot. more about it. Invisible robot. But um, so Dr. Hubertus is uh, is killed and then his assistant goes in, finds him dead and is very upset. But then the door closes again and she is also frozen to death. Uh, much faster, apparently. No, no. There's a problem. There's something that was missing in the shot. It bothered me terribly. I was waiting for it. He's completely frozen. He falls down. There's a crashing sound. <laughs> they never show the shattered body. They refer to it later. Then she apparently freezes and shatters. I'm like, you go to all this shattered. trouble to freeze someone solid in a movie and you don't show the shattered pieces of the remains. Yeah. What's yeah, wrong with they you? They had plenty of budget left over for that, I'm sure. They could have thrown ice yep. cubes on the and, floor. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. Human ice cubes. And, and we should note that Dr. Hubertus was played by Michael Fox, right. which is the reason Michael J. Fox has is a J Michael in the middle of his name. That's right. For genius. Mm-hmm. I just I like the fact that we cut away and back, you know, to and from Hubertus several times, and each time he has a slightly thicker layer of Christmas tree flocking exactly. on him. That's great. He doesn't get any slower. At one point, they cut back to him, and his glasses are completely frosted. Yes, <laughs> and he's still acting like he can see through them. Yep. 
But I will say there is an enormous level of pathos as he's feebly batting at the window and the, the wiper blade is sort of squeaking <laughs> as it goes back and forth. It's actually a pretty effective scene. And he finally gets a pole to like smash the window open. Right. And at that point, all but, of his joints lock yes. up and he at just At that point, falls he shows the first, the first signs that anything has gone wrong inside there and he just stops short. Yep. I was uh, I was pretty happy about that uh, inventory room though. There were exciting items in that uh, boxes yes. and di- more dials of wire in case you needed mm-hmm. you know to oh, find the coils the, yeah coils. The coils it was pretty Lots cool of coils uh, the music in here is really good I noticed this is um very very Star Trek music so your you, mm-hmm. your your sci-fi movie music of the mid fifties was your sci-fi TV music of the mid sixties oh yeah. Um, and then we so we move we move out of the the, the claustrophobic base for our one other location in the film, <laughs> Outside. which is the <laughs> desert. And this is a a helicopter ride. Two men are taking a helicopter ride in an open air helicopter, and still manage to smoke a cigarette. A man is smoking. <laughs> he lights a cigarette in the open air helicopter as they're flying, which seems impossible. And then the other part of it that I really liked is he he asks the uh, he asks the pilot. Um, if he knows the location of this base, because it's a secret base, and uh, he says no, the the helicopter is on autopilot, and it pilots me the rest of the way in, so I have no idea where we are. Well, the giant brain machine has taken control. The, yeah, the brain the machine, the, the, yeah. the, the, the supercomputer, as you do. And and you know he's and he says, look, the even the uh, instruments are magnetized, so I can't even see the instruments. However, right. they're in a open air helicopter; <laughs> they can see where they're going, <laughs> exactly. and they only go like another five miles from that point too. <laughs> So, so I don't understand that. I know exactly where they are. They're on the uh, set for MASH. They're yeah. in Eastern California, where <laughs> MASH was shot. Well, they're outside of Victorville or something, yep. I think. Outside Victorville, they're in the desert. But, you know, dude, maybe maybe take note of where the controls start going crazy and then walk it back about five miles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At yeah. least we get more shots of gauges and dials. Yes, the helicopter. Well, that is... Yeah, that's uh, that's realistic helicopter equipment there. So anyway, the, he la- he lands and uh, and goes into the base and uh, and is told that they're constructing plans for for future spaceships and space stations, and they have very particularly they've been in- investigating this idea of freezing astronauts uh, so they can send them to far off places and then send radar beams to thaw them out. Um, and that and, and but unfortunately, the doctor, Doctor Hubertus, who was researching the the suspended animation astronauts, which again, suspended animation astronauts, not a crazy idea, no, it's but great. the specifics in Gog are wacky. Uh, yeah, with the, that's with, how it works. With the radar beams, that's how it works. It is how it works. Um, and and uh, so that's the the beams thaw them out. So they think there's a saboteur. And since do, our our friend from the helicopter, Doctor Shepard, he's from the Office of Scientific Investigation. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure he's the cigarette smoking man. Yeah, oh, he's work. He works mm-hmm. for Oscar Goldman. It's the OSI. Yeah, and uh, and the first order of business is he gets a fancy jumpsuit with a gold ring on the sleeve, which means he can go anywhere. There pretty are sweet. sensors in the suits. There are mm-hmm. uh, alloys apparently in the in the ring. It's very exciting. A little badge that shows whether or not he's been poisoned. All kinds of sun mirrors and things. And too. and how what what level? How far do we go? First level, there are five levels. David, and I will not go to second level with you. The second level joke comes later, Glenn. You never go past the first level on the first date. And we meet Joanna, the love interest, who is a, who is very, a very pointy woman. She is. She, she's a secretary, but she's actually from security section who, yes. and has been monitoring things yes. to make sure that this secret Manhattan Project, like it is likened to the Manhattan Project at one point, where they're, lear- they're investigating space things, uh, is, not, uh, is not subverted 
in terms of its security. And there, there's a they share an embrace in the locker room as he's getting his jumpsuit on, and uh, and then we're and we're told that Novak, the computer at the heart of the lab, is indispensable to the operation Wait, of no, Kim now, Novak. I, I, I love Kim Novak. Why is she? It's, why do we it's not actually see her Novak Djokovic, the tennis player. Oh, turns yeah, out. I, oh, I don't want to shock oh. anybody about how casting works, but. After this film, uh, the actress <laughs> retired and married Ivan Tours. Oh, interesting. So. I thought she was fine, though. What a coincidence. Yeah, she was fine. She was one of the, actually, she was one of the most consistent performers in the entire film, to be honest. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, she was fine. <laughs> well, they're good. Yeah, good for her. she's not given much to do at all. No, but she did it well. You know, she's she's there for security section. I like that aspect right. of it. And, and uh, she's sort of a sidekick and, and gets to gets to be rescued at the end. So, and, and here begins roughly, I think, 35 to 40 minutes of the runtime <laughs> that is composed entirely of scientists explaining to each other in great detail yes. just what the hell is supposedly going on here. And it's well, not, as you know, Bob. It's not even exposition, really. There's no plot development going on. It's just, look at all this cool science stuff. And then the science is just crap they made up that sounded sort of plausible in 1953. My note is this is like a high school play, but one put on by the science department. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought this was like a science education film that mm-hmm. they that they turned Dramatized. into. They said people like this science film about rockets so much. Let's turn it into a movie with robots too. It's you know it's lovely robots. how it just sort of goes robots. here. Now you need to see this thing. Now you'll see this thing. Now you'll see this thing. Now you'll see this thing. And then it then it goes right back to the beginning when it when each thing starts killing people off. Indeed, but right. it's like. Oh, oh, you're killing me. And, ha- and, you know, how much of it Literally. is a scientist explaining to another scientist who's already down there who should already know this right. stuff? <laughs> and they ask such leading questions, too. It's like they see the the uh, the scale model of the city they built just so they could set it on fire to demonstrate yes. the space awesome. for the new hires. That was awesome. And the awesome. immediate question that she asks is, what about the oceans? Well, we just happen to have this <laughs> pool of water over here. And we can boil that away. I want to have that job, the guy that builds the models for them to stay on fire. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's like a model building group down there. It's got to be a frustrating job. You burnt another one? Well, we had new, another new hire. So. <laughs> my, my note for that was, <laughs> let me show you my model railroad. This is an engage model of a town on the shore of Lake Erie. Let's watch it burn. That seems like a kind of place <laughs> mm-hmm. that would be a target for a space mirror. Cleveland, yeah. no! <laughs> I do have this to say. At least Willy Wonka had the uh, had the consideration for the audience to have the ironic deaths happen at the end of each scene after it's introduced and not at the end of the movie stacked up like that. Yeah. Brian, yes. I'm afraid you didn't watch the end of that movie. They don't die. I think Wait, you missed what? something. I know it got too sad, but you should have watched the end. Oh. Well, that's what I'm saying. This is This is total slasher film. You know, you've got your you've got your kill at the front. It's front loaded with a yep. with a good kill to kind of uh, pique your interest, and then you've got a huge period where nothing much happens, but we meet <laughs> the characters, and there are all these incredibly incredibly shallow stereotypes that each have like one character trait. <laughs> yep. We've got the pervert scientist. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm a Mario. The this scientist. one's the cranky Swiss scientist. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, this this one is uh, Dr. Clayton Forrester. Yeah. And uh, and what they're really doing here is they're explaining all of the stuff that's going to kill people later, so that you'll properly appreciate it mm-hmm. when like the the sun bullets are shot at the at the Swiss scientist's wife. Sun bullets. It's Chekhov's spectroheliscope. <laughs> this week's episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by Casper mattresses, obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now you can get fifty dollars toward any mattress purchase by going to Casper.com/snell and using code Snell. Now you spend about a third of your life sleeping. You should do it on a good mattress. Casper mattresses are a hybrid of two different technologies, latex foam and memory foam, giving you just the right sink and just the right bounce. These are super comfortable and supportive mattresses. I've been using one for more 
than a year now, and I love it. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy, though, so if you're not sure whether you'll like this mattress, you know what? You can buy it risk-free. They deliver it straight to you. You can try it for up to 100 days. If you're not happy, they pick it back up and take it away. Now, at a mattress store, maybe you lay down for a minute or two on a mattress. You can't really tell anything. Would this be comfortable in an hour or eight hours? With Casper, you can sleep on it. Literally, like the phrase says, sleep on it. Sleep on it for 90 days, 98 days, 99 days, 100 days, and find out if you want to keep it or not. Here are the costs. 500 for a twin, all the way up to 950 for a king-size mattress. If you compare that to industry averages, it's an outstanding price point. And we can do you even better. You will get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash Snell and using the code Snell. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper Mattresses for sponsoring The Incomparable. Among the information we find out at this point, I, I mean, I, Dr. Shepard, we, we, it's unclear to me how, how versed he is in space science. So they're explaining to him a little bit about what they do in this crazy underground lab that they've got. What is he a doctor of exactly? Well, I've been uh, trying to figure that out. Doctor of science. Space. He's a science doctor. He's a scientician. He's a doctor of science. Uh, He's a man of science and a doctor of science. He has a PhD in scientific so, science security studies and security. Yes. The triple S. So the space station is going to be solar powered, which means that they put a dish on the top and uh, they shoot sunbeams into it from planet Earth. Or, or, or no, they collect sunbeams because the sun never sets in space, um, which isn't right. really true if you're in an orbit around the Earth because you have to go behind the Earth and then there is no sun. So, But anyway, there is a lot of scientific detail, even though a lot of it doesn't hold but together. Yeah, you shine the sun on, mer- on a tube of mercury and that, uh, that causes turbines to spin. It does. It, and it heats up water and steam. And then, uh, then oxygen uh, travels over the Jefty tubes, and um, <laughs> and, and it makes everything go. There's five Jefty tubes in the space station. There are there are test space station people. We get a lengthy scene where where microgravity is tested by par- having apparently uh, these two people wearing metal mesh suits, and then they are made weightless by magnets. Their costumes are very nice. Cirque du Soleil, <laughs> creepy French mirror doctor. Circus performers always needed some spare jobs in Hollywood. And they so. explain that the yeah, further right. you get away from the Earth, the less gravity there is, which is sort of true. But basically, when you're in space, you are weightless because you're in free fall. And here it's more like, well, if you went a few thousand more miles away, you'd be even lighter, which is not, again, that's not how it works. <laughs> science is, there's something wrong with this science. I'm not sure what it is. That's not, that, it yeah. doesn't ring true. You still have the same mass, but the gravity, blah, blah, blah. But you can do some fancy tricks uh, uh, that are sort of acrobatic when you are when you weigh less. By the way, speaking of a creepy French mirror doctor, you have to have been excited <laughs> at this point, Jason, when you realized that they were discussing a mirror in space that could be a powerful weapon and and came to understand that we were watching the prequel to Real Genius. To Real Genius, Genius yes. Mm-hmm. The thought did occur to me that if you <laughs> mm-hmm. mounted a mirror in space, you could destroy uh, cities and boil lakes or, or cook a lot of pop popcorn. popcorn. Nobody asks at that point, what if you filled a house with popcorn, unco- unpopped popcorn, and put some other mirrors in the house? Well, those are things government scientists just never imagined. There was Clearly. a distinct whiff of uh, Frankenstein versus the space monster, also with the like the mirrors rising and you know coming out of little wolf trap spider holes on the surface. I like that. I thought of Teletubbies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Oh yes. 
I like the little coil that rises out from behind a rocky outcropping and sort of moves around a little bit and then goes back down as though it's... You weren't supposed to see that. Mm. And and they seem to pronounce robot somewhere in between robot and robot. Yeah, no one says robot. They all say robot. 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 At the very least, they could be more respectful and pronounce it in the complete way, which is robobot. Or just Tobor spelled backwards, which I think is uh, yes. generally how they were referred to in the Wait, 60s. Robot is Tobor spelled backwards? Robot is Tobor. I'm, I'm sorry to blow your mind, man. Spelled backwards. Whoa. It's true. The, um, they, we also we get to see a tuning fork, which uh, a series <laughs> of, tuning, of forks, tuning forks, which generate noise. I'm unclear about why they exist. That is their alarm system. It's a, it's a fork-based alarm system that also can set armchairs ablaze. Yes, yeah, yeah, there's a leather easy chair <laughs> nearby that is set on fire. Uh, <laughs> just the arm, though. Because science... <laughs> Wait, I want to point something out here, though. There is an interesting, there's an interesting point we missed in the solio I don't the helio think so. lab. In the helio <laughs> lab, this is a callback. In the helio lab, Uh-oh. they demonstrate how it works with a scale model. We'll come back to that later. I think. Uh, all right, scale um, model. The the they burn yes, indeed a scale model. It's scale very model. important for later. It's not that important, <laughs> uh, but scale it, it does come back. Nice. They, they burn they burn the easy chair, um, and and in order to save themselves from this activation of the tuny forks, they it, it, they're all directed open your mouths, and everybody opens their mouths and looks like idiots. But what, apparently, sound can kill heard, you. I never heard the open your mouths, possibly because I was covering my ears at that point. <laughs> but I watched it twice, and I don't think I ever heard that. It's right after the easy chair catches on fire. <laughs> That's well. That's that's the natural response when it when the arm of an easy chair near you starts burning. Is open, to open your mouth. your mouth, take in the smoke, and uh, really take yep. a good hard drag. That Nagahide is a good eye. <laughs> uh, we learn that uh, that Novak is the nuclear operative variable automatic computer. And why wouldn't it be? It's made in Switzerland in a neutral country, which is totally important. By Doctor Zeitman, a Swiss scientist. Right. This will not be mentioned again until the very end of the film when right. it will become a really sad uh, explanation for the plot of the film. <laughs> Though he immediately becomes, due to his crankiness, the, the Scooby-Doo villain that's clearly not the one that's actually responsible for mm-hmm. anything. Old man <laughs> Jenkins! He's, he's, he's prickly and unlikable and all of that, and he introduces yes. them to his robots, Gog and Magog. We also meet his assistant, uh, Dr. Patty Duke's father. I, I love I this so. scene so much because they're like, they're using paper tape, they're reciting long, uh, ridiculous series of numbers. It's like the most, it's the weirdest idea of how computer and robot controlled things would work, as you have apparently the most powerful computer on the planet, and you're saying, G3, program pulse 5, accumulate. 11 like you're doing machine language programming with right. your voice right. awesome. and, that, and that results in the robot uh, going 20 feet and picking up a screwdriver and handing yeah. it to you along with <laughs> it, an electric it takes shock like an hour and, and 4,000 reels of paper tape there might be an electric shock Dr. Zeitman has these two great lines one of which when, when uh, uh, Joanna the, the sidekick love interest says something about you know this is kind of frightening science you know, is never frightening <laughs> exactly <laughs> that was and, though and then a few minutes later, when he's like, I have no time to bother with regulations, at which point I thought, that science is kind of frightening <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're the creator of several robots, you, uh, you, yeah. you think science is never frightening. Also, at one point, he declares, all handled by robot power. I do like the prominent vein in the middle of his forehead, too. It's, um, it's shocking. My favorite non sequitur, I forget if it was in this scene or the second time they visit later, but is when uh, they're looking at the tape and they say, oh! Some janitor could have gotten this tape mm-hmm. and gotten it somewhere else. And then he goes, nope, nope. And it's never brought up again. Like, the way it's delivered is so important then. Nope, 
not not going to happen again. Well, the, the you know, are they're all fine. looking for they're looking for a spy or someone here, and he's and it's it shows you how arrogant Doctor uh, what's his name is that he Doctor Zeitman that that he doesn't care if he incinerates the the paper tape, which were shown by young William Shallert. Um, Doctor Patty Duke's father. Yes, oh. and the janitors oh. are also incinerated. And Mr. Trouble with Tribbles. Um, no the, one will be seated during the gripping, lecturing Dr. Zeitman on his paper tape disposal habit scene. Every punched <laughs> hole represents a thought. The moment that the robots are engaged so we can see them robots. in action. Now you're one, saying it. And one rolls into the shot. Well, these aren't robots, Glenn. These are robots. They're, robots. They're different. Robots. Robot or not. Robots or nits. Robot or nut. When the robots roll into the shot, I had that moment of realizing that they never showed us any sense of scale when they were showing us the robots <laughs> in the other part of the, the yeah. thing. I thought they mm-hmm. were like two feet tall but they're as tall as a man can we please talk about the design of these god-awful robots it's not so good (laughs) well they're they're like proto daleks they 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 wave their arms as they roll like they have to pee really bad oh it's and they they have a very strange probe device at a certain i think i think the robots are happy to see everybody it's a flamethrower it turns out well yeah there's a very it is a very phallic flamethrower and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and then they, they sort of wave their arms up and but down. But they have several different limbs up there. So there's the two arms that always flail as they're walking. Yeah. I'm demonstrating, yeah. but you can't right? see. No. And then there's no, the flaming play. dildo, and then right. there's a <laughs> claw at the back that never gets used. Never for gets used. No. It's a prehensile claw. I expect expecting something to happen. Also, it causes electric shocks for some reason. These are not well-grounded robots. No. Robots. Only one of the hands actually works. They're sort of like pre-Tom Servo arms. They just sort of flop around. <laughs> It's whichever arms the people inside them can get used. People are already frightened by, they're terrified by these robots when they see them (laughs) rolling around. You don't want them to be like, oh my god, and it's armless too. No. I can can totally not relate in any way to these, these, these abominations of science because they don't even have arms. And at the end of that scene, when, when, you know, okay, they've shut off the robots, robots, and uh, our heroes leave... When the doors slide open, there is a Coke machine in the hallway. Yes, there is yeah, a Coke machine. Which is yes. awesome. Sponsored and I thought, by. Now the Coke machine will approach you and hand you a bottle of refreshing <laughs> Coke. Prepare for a slight sugar shock. Slight shock. electric right. shock. Right. But that Coke machine hasn't been stocked in 30 years because the, the, uh, the well, giant brain secret. machine doesn't, doesn't want to bring in the Coke uh, delivery guy. So you say no that. High fructose One of the things syrup. that really bothered me in this movie is the obvious answer from the first 20 minutes of this film is that the, the uh, atomic uh, electric brain machine. brain machine, giant brain machine, giant brain machine yeah. has become sentient and is going to try to take over the world and, or is trying to prevent the people from launching something into space. And it is the, it is the culprit behind all of this because yeah. it's become alive, which is not what happens in this no. movie at no. all. They threw you for a loop, man. I was a little disappointed by that, but I think I think that concept maybe predated this a little no, bit. No, they got you. It's a twist ending. It was a red herring. Well, this is the thing about this film. This film introduces, uh, amid, amid all the uh, science lecturing and uh, industrial quality of it, it has uh, a charm that it keeps introducing interesting ideas like that and then doing nothing with them no. whatsoever. Nope. Throw it away. In the hands of a better film director, a budget, better scenery, a good editor, a script. Well, <laughs> I could go everything. <laughs> oh, I mean, this this would be a solid X File or a Doctor Who episode. Um, it's forbidden with, planet, you know, really. Done well. I think if yeah. you could give them twenty million dollars today, you could do a version of Gog, and it would actually be kind of interesting yeah. if it was done with competent people. But because yeah. I mean, the, the the idea that it is the computer, you know, that's not a bad red herring. Yeah. 
done well. Yeah, I mean, because that's, if that's what you expect yeah. it to be. I think it's interesting that Gog and Magog are both referred to as he. Usually when you have mm-hmm. uh, two anthropomorphic objects, the natural inclination is to make one male and one female. Well, there are references to a lot. In, they're, they're in a number of different uh, ancient religious texts, shall we say. Yes. And, and they, are, they are both male and they are often associated with the end times, right? So, well, they so show up in Revelation, somebody you know. was like, you know, ooh, this is this will give it power. We'll name them Gog and Magog. Technology uh, yeah. is going to take us down the path of destruction. That's right. That's the message of this movie. You should not tamper in Gog's Never. domain. Yeah, oh. Swiss are always <laughs> trying to, you know, bring the end times, as we know. Uh, so we move to the we move to the nuclear pile for another set of lectures. This movie is a nuclear pile. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I'm looking right now, I have the film in front of me, actually, as we review this important lesson. <laughs> and uh, I love the fact that she's reciting, they have all these weird apertures that he can look through that are all yeah. in the same place. Oh, yes. They're all within mm-hmm. like two feet of each so other. So they, ha- they had some footage that they shot and of, they're not of, labeled. of arms moving mm. various things around in flames or something. And then they, and they had this set where he's got the various different places he can peer <laughs> a in. a red filter for some reason. So he peers into those various places and sees the same footage playing <laughs> at the various por- portions. But, but in red. It's all in red, so it's yes. different. It's that red filter different. controlled well, data institute where Brewing up isotopes and picking up bottles with robot machines. Yep, it's all handled by robot power. It's red. It's Coke red. Is what also, it is. <laughs> if you're wondering what's in a nuclear pile, the answer is there are isotopes and plutonium mm. compounds <laughs> and and high fructose mm. corn syrup. Yeah. I had nuclear piles mm. once. Couldn't sit down for a week. It used to take 16 <laughs> technicians to run an atomic <laughs> pile, but now it's all handled by robots. That's well, how it works. my favorite shot in all of those little vignettes is when some claw takes out a little cylinder, which I can only assume is an isotope, a really, really big isotope. And another claw comes in and can't quite get it. And oh, I can yeah, just imagine yeah. some technician trying to do the little trigger thing, trying to get, I can't get the. Oh, okay, fine. They just cut away. And they used it because, of course, they did. They shot in 15 days. Well, it's like any scene where Gog is trying to grab something. And clearly, there's, there's, it's just not that easy to do from inside the Gog <laughs> suit. <laughs> so he just sort of like bangs the claw against the wall for a little while and then slides another foot over. Gog just has to be loved. There, there, so a sudden thing happens. There, there's a, a, a very sudden alert where we're told in a rush of dialogue that there is a high concentration of alpha particles in the only area where nobody works with isotopes. As she says very clearly. The second level. The only level where nobody works with isotopes. So you shouldn't go to the second level. I won't go to second level with you, Jason. But they say, let's go! And they're off. If they had been smart, they would have designed more bendy corridors on the second level. Indeed. Because as we've learned, if you put a bend in your corridor, radiation can't can't, can't can't track you through. No, this is valid. They have hardened facilities. The alpha particles be absorbed by the... This is actually a reasonable scientific fact. We absorbed by the concrete. Yeah. You put but, very massive but, concrete. But they don't, they don't do that on the second level, Steve, because they don't work with isotopes Nobody there. Works oh, with but isotopes that's the only there. level where they don't work with it isotopes. Is so only... they brought in like a separate architect just to do the second level because the first guy, he was all bendy corridors. That's all he wanted to do. So anyway, our, our, our friend from the nuclear pile puts on a poncho in order to protect him from the radiation <laughs> while the other two people just don't 
and are there wearing their regular jumpsuits. Um, and we discover that a, la- a nice lady on the second level has died of radioactive poison. She looks fine, but she's dead. And her little badge says that she got radiation. So that's why she's dead. And it turns out that there is a little radioactive isotope miracle grow that has been stuck yes. in a plant <laughs> in the chemistry lab. That was great. I object to the units in this in this movie. We've talked about this a little bit already, I think. But the units, she says it's 300 milliroontgens, which is an incredibly tiny amount of radiation. It's really unacceptable. Well, this is a, this is a film that has a decibelometer that shows <laughs> visibly shows <laughs> DC amperes. Oh, on it. it's wonderful. Jason, who are who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe this professional-looking black placard we had made up that says decibels? Or are you going to believe those incompetents at Minneapolis Honeywell Regulator Company? <laughs> yeah. Those guys don't know what the hell they're doing. No. We made a sign, and then the guy in the hazmat suit goes out and takes the woman and leaves the two people without any sort of nuclear protection to yep. continue examining the room to find any other nuclear things. <laughs> I, there's also an element I'm not sure I understand. He puts a glass, uh, a transparent glass cover over the plant, and that stops the radiation. Yes. I'm assuming <laughs> it's lead impregnated glass. It's, tra- it's, lead, it's a lead, oh. yeah, it's lead crystal. This exists, but... See, the thing is that glass is, it's filled with bendy corridors. They're microscopic. <laughs> this seems way too technically possibly accurate, because I believe you can impregnate lead with gla- a glass with lead, and that seems like a technically accurate detail that is out of place. Glenn, how yes. complex is your GOG head cannon? My GOG, oh God, you don't want to know. <laughs> no, Fire comes out of the GOG head cannon. <laughs> Yeah, as a general rule, <laughs> it's, it's not that complex, frankly. It's just like fuel and an igniter. I free, freeze framed it at the moment where the guy is bending over the dead girl in the in the radioactive room, just to note that he is. I mean, he is wearing a transparent poncho. That is his safety outfit. It is a. It covers only the top part of his body, and you can see through it. It's leaded, it is slightly though. opaque. It is a. It is basically a poncho. Science. Mm-hmm. It's a bendy corridor poncho. Yeah. So now we've had we've had an, we've had another uh, another death, but another death is about to happen. Yeah, the, the murdering has started back up at this point, which Indeed. is exciting. We're done with the yes. science lecture. So let's show you where <laughs> astronaut subjects get uh, taught about high uh, g forces. We have a little wheel that two astronauts, a man and a woman, sit on in their little spacesuits. Incidentally, a spin table, and they spin and spin and spin great. up to ten g's where they can stay for one minute. And at that point, an alarm happens, and they get it gets locked in order and by the time they can um they Their can blood boils yeah by the faster time, and faster also and faster. there's oxygen problems because they need to spin them in low oxygen which i'm not quite sure i understand Less anyway resistance by the time it all it all uh, works out and they stop them they're dead right. the control wheel gets stuck and i'm thinking this is this is the hinge point where they decided that labs should have switches yeah. in addition to wheels because <laughs> those damn control wheels they will get stuck from time to time. This is pre-WD-40, I believe. So, But they, they died because they got turned up to 11. And we know they died because they just kind of slumped over in their seats. And yes. it's so convincing. <laughs> it's extremely convincing. Yes. Oh, yeah. They, they slump over, but not too far because that would be, uh, you know, it would cause trouble for the shot. So they just sort That's of right. slump over yeah. a little bit. This is also the creepiest lechery of all time. The guy comes in there to look at a <laughs> woman great. in a tiling closed in a space suit. It's like, come on, dude. She was so young. And, so you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good thing at that point that Shepard is the one who carries her off, because I'm a little concerned about what creepy mirror professor would do yeah. if he wandered off. Creepy with her. mirror guy. This is also creepy. the second time in the movie where a woman is taken off by a man. <laughs> yeah. Just yep. picked up and walked out with. Just carry, carried out. That's what you did back in the day. And it happens like five more times. I mean, there, there, there is some beautiful 50s sexism in this. 
one of the great lines in the first time when they're in that lab with the gymnasts and the Cirque du Soleil people or whatever, where, where again, Joanna says, you know, women are better in space than men. Well, they take up less space. That scene in space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one in space. There's no such thing as the weaker sex. And Shepard goes, yeah, that's why I like it down here. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> what? <laughs> I thought that was funny. I thought that was really sexist and awful and funny. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, it was funny. This movie owns its sexism. Is the thing. It's it's yeah. cl- it's not afraid to point out how nasty and sexist it is. No. Well, and it kind it kind of lets her be an intelligent person, which I, I will give them credit for. Well, you got to say. I mean, a lot of the positions of scientists in this lab are filled by women. They always yeah. have some kind yeah. of a. a a, a, a lesser role, their assistants, they're never the, the head scientist. Although the, the one in the chem lab who gets killed by the plant spike, uh, she may be in charge of the chemistry I department. Think I, think I think she is. I think she is. But I got to say, for 1954, given all the other, the, uh, the sort of ambient uh, sexism going on, that's that's relatively progressive. To it have could have them. been all men in this movie, right? Easily. Yeah, it is, right, it right. is quite quite impressive that way you know but they write a character who is like the sexist that is his one trait and then <laughs> later on in the movie they still have sex there's um the main guy slaps a hysterical woman to make her call her superior and it's like well what that just the works hell are you doing? <laughs> that's just that's how but it keeps her from fainting that's right you see it's logical well, she's having she's having hysterics she is literally having hysterics yeah. So um, this is the point where they realize that many people are dying in their secret base and that perhaps something bad is going on. So, <laughs> Although nobody seems, frankly, all that disturbed by well, it. <laughs> it's, it. They're super mellow about it, but they do say keep working in pairs. They're scientists. But that space station project deadline, super serious. So we got to keep working, even though everybody's getting picked off one by one, because we've got a, a very important deadline to make for the space station. And then after the directive to keep working in pairs, which I guess hasn't been disseminated yet, because for the next five minutes or so, we keep seeing... <laughs> individual people walking down <laughs> corridors to their doom. So, you know, I guess they could have gotten the word out sooner. There's also that thing early on where they made a big deal about the nuclear safety of each level and that they're supposed to be working in ships and it's very complicated, like, okay, you call him and tell people so that they're going to be in radas and, and that, you know, that's very important. They spent a lot of time yeah. talking about the logistics of levels and it's not, yeah. not that big a deal. There's that. a map at one point we get to see. There is the a levels. long sequence with a map. Yeah, yeah. and a pointer. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the, now comes one of my favorites, favorite scenes of the movie, actually, which is the parabolic mirror that we've Sun learned bullets. so much about, yes. uh, try, tries to, tries to burn a lady yes. to death. This is the pervert scientist's wife. And she, ru- and she runs around. And she's a mirror scientist and she doesn't grab a mirror to shine back at it. What is that about? <laughs> also, that about? also, it doesn't pivot for a very long time where she could have just la- literally sat down on the floor for a while until it figured yeah, out. Run around in circles like those things in, uh, in Zelda. And then it finally does go down and she has to and then she picks up like a a, a a bottle or something and just chucks it at the mirror and breaks the mirror but, which is smart i mean that's more than any of the men who die oh my did. god yeah, it's not mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a ridiculous scene on one level but i i kind of appreciate it of like it's a oh, yeah. a fun kind of murderous contraption that is in this science right. lab and she's trying her best to to avoid it and she doesn't just scream hysterically and die although she, she does scream hysterically she but, does but she doesn't she's, die. she's but running doesn't die. she's on the move while she screams she, well she takes a break between her runs when yeah. when she stops periodically she screams and then sure. she moves on i mean i i wasn't kidding when i said chekhov's spectroheliscope because that i mean it it sets it up beautifully and and you don't need any explanation when it starts happening you're like ooh, oh yeah ooh, this is really nicely done that scene if it weren't so dumb if like the entire premise of the solar bullets were not so dumb it actually would have been an effective uh, tense scene <laughs> shine on you crazy mirrors <laughs> 
<laughs> Guys, I discovered something. Remember that? Remember that windshield wiper earlier? It's coming no, up again. I don't remember that, Glenn. What was that? It's coming up again. Now it's a radar screen. Interesting. It's the radar wiping blade. Oh my God! There's some symbolism afoot. It only here. works in one direction, though. It has a whole other level to it. I won't go to the second level with you, Steve. The the tuning forks go mad again at yes. this point. Yes, uh, we do. get we get the line at this int- intensity. Sound can kill, which sounds really great. I think I don't I don't know if that's actually true. Maybe. Maybe. Even if it could, I suspect that slow roasting would not be the result of the, the killing that sound yeah. does. But he uh, he slowly he, he turns pink and uh, and starts to smoke. Well, well, because we've seen that the um, what happened the to chair. the armchair, right? To the leather right. chair, right? Well, he was he was made entirely out of a Nagahide armchair. He had actually been. Yeah. He was wearing a, his uniform. Look. The chair. So he throws them out, and then the door slides closed. And they say, "Well, we got to get him." And they say, "No, it can only be opened from the inside," which is a terrible. Why, why would that be? Um, and then he is co- he is cooked by the DC micro amperes of the decibel sound <laughs> intensity in the room. Meanwhile, Doctor Shepard runs off to get an axe, which he does. He slash or does he tear down the door with it? Does he chop it down in a fit of rage? No, he just calmly wedges it into the door and starts exactly. trying to slide it, <laughs> trying to pop it open. Yeah, <laughs> starts trying to jimmy it. Well, he doesn't want to break the door. It's expensive. <laughs> this stuff is expensive. We also get some of the worst sound design I have ever seen in any single movie <laughs> oh, well, ever. Now, yes, it was bad enough when it was a consistent tone that was literally killing a person on screen. But when they would cut <laughs> outside to watch him wedge the axe under the door and then cut back, it was like a strobe light of sound. It was god awful. I wanted to rip out my. It headphones. was unpleasant to listen to. I was thinking, boy, if you were in the movie theater for this, what would you do? Walk out. Well, maybe if you hadn't already. <laughs> maybe. Uh, but he's dead. He's been cooked by the sound. So another victim, the tuning forks. Cooked by the sound. Yep. That was a great collection Death of tuning by forks. by decibels. Probably you're sitting in your 54 Chevy convertible making out at the drive-in at uh, this point. You just knock the uh, speaker off the... Yeah. It's kind of like uh, the great gig in the sky on uh, Dark Side. It's just, it's kind of got a good ambiance to it. You can mm. get a rhythm going in the back seat. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, let's look into the positive, Steve. That's right. Yeah. Hey, everybody, this is not a sponsorship message. This is just a message from me to you. If you'd like to talk to other people, the people who make these podcasts and the people who listen to these podcasts, we've set up a Facebook group. It's called The Incomparable Zeppelin Hanger, and you can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash incomparable pod. And it's a closed group, so you have to ask to be invited, but that's really just to keep out spammers. Just ask, and we will add you. And then you can join the wonderful group of people who are already there having amusing on- and off-topic discussions uh, related to nerdy things like The Incomparable. So check it out. Uh, so they lost. They lose a robot. At this point, no. Mag- you do. Mag- Magog is gone. Nobody well, noticed. Well, you know as well as I do that Magog cannot move without Novak. <laughs> this is a key plot point. Novak yep. has been turned off at this point. The giant brain that controls the atomic pile yep. has been shut off. And yet you know, Magog is nothing gone. Nothing to worry about there, though, because the safety rod is still in place. But <laughs> yeah. But But the point is... That it can't possibly have been anything to do with the robots because the uh, computer is off. Yeah, but Magog is gone. You didn't even notice. <laughs> Which is, admittedly, that's that's sheer incompetence on the part of Patty Duke's dad. It's one of two enormous man-sized robots, robots, sorry, that How are rolling around. How do you not see around, those arms flailing around in the corner their of your arms vision? as they move. <laughs> the assistant is and- in the room, lying on the floor, like pulling out memory cards or something. The thing that disturbs me most is Dr. Zeitman's high-waisted pants, though. They go up to like the <laughs> middle of his chest. 
They're so he's, tall. He's Swiss. He's a he's small Thai. Very, very high. I, I felt so bad for William Shallard, though, because he then spends, like, what, five minutes just saying, how could I have missed that? Why did I miss that? You said that already. Is That's the best line in the movie. Is I, he, he keeps repeating that, and Simon actually has a line where he says, you've said that already. Yep. <laughs> you have forgotten your next line. Stop talking. So the theory is a ray from a high-flying airplane, this mysterious airplane that's at 70,000 feet. 80,000 feet. Oh, 80,000 feet. It's like a U-2 spy plane. It is, it is incredibly it high up. Feet. Um, Higher than we can get, although we later blow it up. Mm-hmm. With our planes. With our planes, that's Perhaps true. Perhaps from below. Must be from below. <laughs> How could it be otherwise? I don't know. High-flying plane. So they, they decide uh, they, they, have to de- they have to destroy the robots. The, robo- the robots are threatening them. They, uh, they, they're going to open the panel and smash the tubes. Uh, they try to shoot at the tubes, and that doesn't work. The, Dr. Zeitman says, I'm not afraid of him. He's following body heat. Yes, and Dr. Zeitman apparently is dead and not producing any body heat, and so that's why he has nothing <laughs> well, to fear. Well, he's got to stay. He, he, he can distract them as they leave. Which works great until you trip over the hammer, hammer. that your assistant left lying in the floor. A hammer, oh, yeah. I just, I'm just confused here about why they hammer. have flamethrowers lying around this facility that anybody can get access yeah. to. Get a flamethrower, they say. It, it's just, is it like in the commissary? Like, okay, I need a well, coke and it, I need a flamethrower? Every, every level has a flamethrower station, clearly, where you can get a flamethrower <laughs> yeah. in case you need them. And, and so he goes and gets but one. They have not maintained them well. They don't necessarily have the mixture correct. Well, sometimes the, they lock up. It's true. But the, but yeah. I, I just want to say Zeitman here. We got to sp- spend a moment to to reflect on the passing of Doctor Zeitman because uh, you know he just, he scene. steps on a hammer and that that is what kills him. <laughs> is that he steps on a hammer and I guess his his lev- margin of error while fencing with Magog was just very fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, the thing is, they left out a very poignant uh, deleted scene where uh, Patty Duke's Doctor Patty Duke's dad had requested that Magog go pick up that hammer and drop it on the, the counter, <laughs> but Magog had snuck off to uh, play with a safety rod at that point, and so it never happened. So sad. That's uh, and and so when that's that was the other thing with his hand is when he's choking Doctor Zeitman, or, or is it? Dr. Petty Duke's dad. Either way, uh, <laughs> Choke, I, no, choking I guess Dr. Petty Duke's dad. Hey, you are. So you're saying Gog and Magog are cousins, identical cousins? He crushes cousins? Patty Duke's dad between his flailing appendages, yes. and then, uh, goes, and then Zeitman gets choked. But we never see him go into the arms. No, no, Brian, we never see him. So when, when he kills... When he kills the assistant, he literally like sort of there's an assistant and a robot and arms are flailing and everybody goes, <laughs> and then he's dead. And, and it's drops, really unclear yeah. what, what, if anything, could have so possibly unclear. happened and, there. And and with Dr. Zeitman, literally his claw is sort of leaning against Dr. Zeitman's <laughs> oh, yeah. neck. It doesn't actually choke him or get Well, it could be the electric him. shock, right? It could I think it's that was, well, again, that was shock. my that's my gog head cannon was the yeah. electric shock, yeah. We don't hear any sound design. No, but, nor is there yeah, there was no, there's no, not and he doesn't react. No, 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 he no, just no. falls down dead. I just figured, you know, the the other noise kind of drowned it out. All right. See the problem with Gog and Magog, you know, in terms of uh having to deal with them and, and and not get killed by them is that they, they laugh alike, they walk alike. <laughs> At times. At times they even they talk even alike. Talk alike. Right, what, what a crazy pair, Gog and Magog, I gotta say. They really are I mean, Gog, Gog has seen Barkley Square, so that's pretty cool. Because they're robots. <laughs> identical robots all the way. And Magog's eating hot dogs. <laughs> Two pairs of matching can openers. Daleks in every way. <laughs> <laughs> 
They go to the atomic pile. Finally, Magog is at the atomic pile. Uh, the alarm goes off, indicating that something is awry at the atomic pile. And this is where we get uh, the love interest, whose name I forget, but she's a pointy one. Joanna. Joanna. Miss She Merrick. shouts out, if he pulls out the safety rod, it'll explode. Yes. <laughs> I think we got that before when they showed us the atomic pile. I think that was one of the ex- lengthy bits of exposition as we saw the various arms moving in the red shaded... Uh, scenes. Yes, I think yeah. we the innuendo that, is not nearly as strong in that scene. There's yeah. a safety rod. It's too subtle. If he pulls it out, it'll explode. Is the thing. Which again, it's not too far off from actual like control rods in a in a nuclear reactor. I think yeah. that's what they're going well, for you here. You don't be whipping out your safety rod just willy nilly. No. I just want to say this is the worst sex ed film I've ever seen. <laughs> Actually, the best part is that there's one thing labeled safety rod, but there's all kinds of rods all over that wall. There's like a bunch of numbers and labels. Well, only one is the safety rod, yeah. Glenn, and that is why that is why it is so clearly labeled as the safety rod. Trust twice. Dangerous rods. This is the only thing in the entire facility that has two signs labeling exactly what it is. So, uh, fortunately, the computer that controls everything in this uh, research lab doesn't control the phones nor the elevators. Because, again, in the concept of, of if the computer is really trying to kill them, I kept thinking, it's got to be, this is too yeah, easy. Yeah. They're going in the elevator. That's going to be too easy. They're going to have to do something. Nope, they just go to the elevator and ride down to the right level with the atomic pile. It's not a problem. Well, Novak uh, is off still at this point, I think. So, But he, the elevators just work independently. Now, there is a hilarious scene here by the safety rod of Magog in full flail, looking around confusedly for the safety rod, which theoretically you would think that Magog would know exactly where it is. Yeah. Until it spots the giant sign on the wall reading safety rod, and then it goes in for the kill. Yep. Still doing the safety rod. It's not that, it's not that smart a robot. No. So we get a good, we get the good lines here. We got it. We got a. It's not, we've got to. It's, we got to stop these robots. Smash them. Anything. (laughs) That's you got. We got to stop these robots. <laughs> Somebody robots. wrote that. Somebody did write that. Uh, Gog also has a flamethrower, so everybody's got a flamethrower. We got yeah. robots with flamethrowers. We got people with fr- flamethrowers. The director comes in with a flamethrower. I wish he had early in the process. The rhesus monkey comes in. With this harkens be. back to Frankenstein meets the space monster. Now we get the excitement of the battle at the atomic pile between humans and robots. <laughs> oh Crosscut. This sounds so much better than it actually is. The scrambling of jets to attack the mysterious jet, uh, mysterious plane that is the balsa wood plane that's flying at eighty thousand feet. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, I love how how it just shifts from those sort of realistic stock footage to all of a sudden it's just clearly models flying. It's being like held up against acetate. Frankenstein meets the space monster has huge amounts of of stock footage. This is ten years earlier, so it's got it's got. Worse stock footage, but it is stock footage of like uh, people coming out and flying jets. But then they integrate their own model work, which is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) At least is there's no you you know you talk about robot uh, or uh, models not being detailed. These literally don't. It's it's balsa wood that was painted one shade. It is they didn't even paint it. It's like they put together the tester (laughs) model and they ran out of paint before they could finish. So they just said, nah, screw it. Yeah. So so we get a combination of of. Of grainy stock footage and not grainy <laughs> fake footage that they put together to show this scrambling all the jets to go find this high flying plane and, and, and try to stop it. And that's happening while they battle the robots at the atomic pile. Epic duel with the useless flamethrower that apparently doesn't cause anything to actually burn. Yeah, well, they, they had the mix wrong. No, no, that's Van Ness that doesn't have the mix right. It's, oh, I know. Uh, I'm. 
They start to pull the safety okay. rod out. The Just trying to keep you honest, David. The nuclear I, indicator I, rises into the danger zone. There's a very big like nuclear <laughs> indicator on the wall with a with a with an arrow that can point from safe to unsafe. The brown zone. The brown zone is where you when it's that's, dangerous that's you, right. you enter the brown zone. <laughs> yep. It's a more, in more ways than one. Thank goodness this movie is in color, too. I guess we should say that. <laughs> the, the Frankenstein meets the space monster from the 60s is not in color. Gog is in living freaking color. Well, it'd be virtually impossible in black and white to determine when we're supposed to be afraid of the danger that mm-hmm. is that is, uh, that is brought, uh, offered up by the atomic pile I agree. as it enters into the danger zone. Uh, so robot, robot number one, who I think is Magog... Yeah, he's the first um, or, one in. Magog's the first one in. Magog is finally flamethrowered and and yes. and stops Yay. because apparently they, they said you need to melt him. He doesn't really melt. He just catches on fire, and they're like, "Well, right. that's it for him." But oh no, here comes Gog! Here comes Gog! Dun, 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 <laughs> he's finally dun, figured out dun, how to dun, open dun. the door. Dun, dun, I forgot to mention, dun, dun, dun. as they rush out to the atomic pile in that earlier scene when they're being menaced by Gog, the door closes behind them, and we were treated to a scene of Gog looking very confused. The door has closed. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> but apparently at this point, he's worked out how to, how to open the door because he makes his way down to the atomic pile. He does, he does finally figure out how to get out uh, through that door. Now, a, a, a guy comes in with another flamethrower. That's that's Doctor Van, Van Ness. Ness. Yes, the, yes. The, uh, the, the head facility of the facility administrator, who also has an indeterminate accent. Adjust your mixture, he says. He's told, uh, but he says the valve is stuck, so his flamethrower isn't working. And, and then, so his his move is to back into the corner instead of running back out the open door that's uh, directly behind him. Which, yeah. admittedly, that's probably what a scientist would do. The um, Doctor Shepard, meanwhile, has like a baseball bat, basically, at this point. <laughs> Uh, they they whirl and he does pretty good. They, the Gog is whirling around. Um, the the he's, they whack his tubes. Yeah, they That's hit. His, they... <laughs> they try to hit his tubes with the baseball bat. And meanwhile, That's illegal in many states, of the United States now. Apparently, the bullet the tubes are bulletproof, but not uh, not bat malfunctioning flamethrower proof. Which yeah. is and baseball news. bat proof. But good news, everybody. The jet has blown up the model the model rocket that was attacking them. With really unfair waves. fight, it was a literal model. Yeah, <laughs> I mean one one of my favorite lines in the movie is he's getting impulses from an outside source. Yep. Look out! <laughs> okay, so they blow up the model rocket, which which solves the it saves the day. It really wasn't about um, killing the robots. If you could blow up the the plane that was overhead, um, our hero and his and his uh, girlfriend security expert get radiation do- doses. Well, they're fine. They're fine. Which causes they're fainting. Fine. She passes out, but he's he's because fine and can, in fact, so fine he can carry her. It's okay. Out. Again. Look, it's, to the it's fine. They're Burn fine. Because gir- uh, girls, it's harder to get radiation for girls is yeah. just much more well, difficult than Jason, it is Jason, the doctor boys. says it isn't serious. It's just a little too much radiation. <laughs> just a little radiation, yeah. Just a little Ask too much. your doctor if radiation is right for you. And they, they, they uh, I, I think our heroes get married at the, after the movie is over, they got married and tried to have kids, but for some uh, reason they just never managed to have kids. I wonder why. They're totally going to bone in that hospital bed, first of all. Yeah, but it doesn't matter because they had massive doses of radiation and they're completely sterile at this point we we yeah. all have very complex gog head cannons don't we? <laughs> we do <laughs> so here here at the end we get uh i don't feel exactly friendly well neither do i uh, how did they control the brain machine and the robots this is this is basically the download that the secretary of defense or something i don't even know who another it is. smoking man dr shepherd's boss 
Um, how, how do they control the, the brain machine of the defense, robots? Yes. It's all about high fr- frequency electronics. Novak was, it turns out Novak built in Switzerland with a power tr- receiver and transmitter. And there was enemy agents who knew about the, the brains of the computer because it was not built in the U.S. It was, it was built by filthy foreigners. Never outsource. In a neutral country, which they make a good point of, of mentioning repeatedly. Yep. Even the neutral guys. Neutral isn't a friend. No. Never trust those neutral guys. You never know where they stand. Mostly in Switzerland. So fortunately, they're um, they're checking the memory units now. It's all gonna be it's all gonna be cleared up. Um, and the uh, it, it turns out they were able to shoot down that the the rocket ship that was uh, that was uh, transmitting to them because it was made of fiberglass. I thought that was an interesting point. Made of fiberglass. It, it was, was a model. Turns impossible out impossible <laughs> to to see on the radar because of the fiberglass. Yeah, it's a model. It's a model plane. Yeah. More plot holes in this movie than Swiss cheese or neutral oh, cheese, as I like no. to call it. Wow! Hi guys, how's it going? So then, there's a funny moment where <laughs> he says, "Well, it's too bad that the, the whole space station program isn't gonna isn't gonna fly." And, 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 and he says, "Oh no, we're gonna launch it tomorrow." <laughs> we had that Didn't, scale model what? ready all the time in the Solio Lab, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Because rocket launches take about thirty seconds to set up and yep. prepare for. So you know, we're just at the drop of a hat. We're gonna go ahead and fire up a. A television set into the sky. He says, a baby space station? Actually, a flying television set. Yeah, which is, ba- he, and what he describes is basically a spy satellite. He's basically saying, we will now be able to watch from high above what, what happens down on the Earth. Well, yeah, what he describes is not a TV set. It's no. a TV camera. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's for the aliens to watch I Love Lucy up there. TV was fairly new. People didn't really get all of the uh, ins and outs of it. And their science advisor didn't really know either. No. <laughs> The flying television set. You're right, David. It's a spy satellite, yeah. which is very much like a, a TV set when you think about it. Well, maybe it, it's like a, the Voyager probe. It actually is a television set, and it's showing uh, just repeats of uh, GOG over and over again. <laughs> All right. And eventually, so potential alien returns, races. Uh, it destroys Ilea and turns her into a... No, wait, that's a whole... It's, searching, in, it's searching for its creator, who is right. uh, GOG. Turns I out. think they're hoping that showing the aliens Gog will show them how superior our scientific knowledge is, mm. <laughs> because there's 35 minutes of just scientific gob- gobbledygook. I think they may be <laughs> overestimating how much they can do with that one satellite, but you know they could launch a thousand more. I guess the film yeah. ends with a final bit of of, of poetry, really, <laughs> it's a, which a little is ray of optimism. We will I think. we will launch it in the morning when the air is fresh and crisp and clean. God, you love the morning, <clears> and possibly you? ready to be polluted by our giant dusty fiery rocket. That that we're firing off, but it's the perfect time to do a launch when the air yeah. is clean in the morning. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's best best launch time by far. And nothing will take us by surprise again. And the la- rocket is launched. The end. And then, and then we cut another back space, to space painting. matte paintings. Yep. <laughs> and Alien great. worlds that are not in this movie. Dun, dun, dun. The end. That's Gog. It's it's um. Is it a good bad movie? Bad bad movie or movie you kind of like, Jason? <laughs> well, Brian, I think it's a piece of. <laughs> if I may open up a fourth category, uh, I kept imagining a better movie that could be made with some of the elements of this movie, like a director set, a, oh, a child yeah. using making a terrible model, then put in the hands of a nuclear physicist. That director set could be could be beautiful, but not this. Gog's director set goes on fire. Yeah, I, I can see a way to make this into a good story. It's you know. The, the the bones are there. It's just really yeah. the robots have bones. It's very clearly clearly a, a, the idea here is that they think they're doing the Lord's work in 
educating as they entertain. That is clearly what they're doing here with we're going to have real science in this thing. And the problem is that there is you can see like where the real science is coming from here, but it's not really real. And it when they do it, it's super boring. As as a slasher film, it's actually fairly solid as a sci-fi slasher. I mean, they yeah. came up with yeah. a lot of exotic ways to kill off scientists. Oh, yeah. yeah. You've got oh, yeah. Dual, dual freezings and breaking up into hundreds of pieces. You've got radioactive plant food spikes. S- spun to death. Sound. Uh, death by spin cycle, right? Yep. Shot by sun bullets. <laughs> Uh, the guy gets he gets uh, slow he gets roasted by tuning forks. Yeah, slow and roasted then, by tuning fork is a pretty good one. Yeah, that's pretty crushed good. and choked by robots. Yes, that's the weakest one of all. That would that would do a Jason film proud. To be honest with you, that was the moment where I thought, oh well, this is one of those movies. We're gonna just they're gonna just kill everybody. Well, the problem is though that they they stuck them all at the back end. If yeah. they had you know even even the worst Friday the Thirteenth movie will intersperse a few beheadings or our our uh, you know machete murders or something. In the explanatory text, and that, I think that's their biggest failing here, is when you're being taught science that is extremely iffy, you really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's it. Any science lecture would would do with a little bit of a, a beheading or you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, think about the pacing problems there. What if? They're explaining science, and then somebody dies. What motivation do they have to go back to teaching science? There is none whatsoever, so I'm glad at least. It felt more natural well, in a no, way. It as gets natural you wanted to come back to the next yeah. lecture so you can see the next horrible yeah, got, murder. That's, that's right. Yeah, and you got to explain. Now, Now you know, now, there's a problem at the nuclear pl- pile. Let's explain yeah. to you how the nuclear pile works. You, you can't possibly appreciate this woman being chased by sun bullets as she runs around the room unless you know all of the science behind it, and we build a scale model that we burn up so you understand exactly what it's it is. It's really the only way to appreciate it. That's yeah, right. This is starting to remind me of something though I realize I just realized what this sets and some of the funkiness is. It's season four of Buffy and the initiative and all the ridiculous science stuff sure. they're doing with monsters it's a, it's and robots. A science, it's a science layer. It's, yeah, a, it's like science yeah. layer. Like if we take cyborgs and monsters and mix them with vampires and people. But again, the funny thing here is that it goes against it goes against our expectations. That's actually one of the clever things about about this. Although, again, I'm not I don't want to give them credit. I'm not sure they were being clever at the time. <laughs> but the cliches have gone the other direction from where this movie goes, where you keep expecting it to be the there's something wrong with these people. There's something yeah. wrong with their program. There's something wrong with their computer. And it turns out, no, it's not. It's saboteurs from the Soviet Union. There might even be a saboteur in, I kept thought, Dr. Zeitman gets exposed. He's obvious, maybe too obvious. But you don't even get to see a human saboteur no. in the end. Just right. a balsa wood model. <laughs> Broadcasting invisible radio oh, waves. balsa wood, I don't trust you anymore. Yeah, well, you should. Balsa wood model of it's a saboteur. Shifty. It is the shiftiest of, uh, <laughs> of the woods. materials. <laughs> yep. There's, that's that's why they keep it in its own aisle at Joanne, so that you don't uh, it doesn't mingle with the other crafting materials. That and redwood, redwood is also suspicious because redwood is probably a communist. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's um, I I think you're right, Steve. Don't even the, get me started on foam core. There's the 30 minutes of of the of the kind of questionable science lecture period that is the where where it's like Doctor Shepard investigates and it's it, David. You're right. It's it's uh, science dragnet for about half an hour where yeah. they're introducing Doctor Shepard to everybody. In 1953, if you actually bought into this crap, it might actually be kind of interesting. But given yeah. that it's no longer 1953 and <laughs> yeah. we know that it's all crap. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is very much uh, let's do everything in exact order. 
right? So, so yeah, they introduce him to every scientist and show every experiment they're doing. And then they, you know, it's, it's, it's like, there's no, there's no sense that anything else happens at the same time as anything else. Right. Yeah. Like, you would think they could run across like other dead scientists that were also murdered throughout the facility from right. time to time. The ones that didn't uh, group up with another scientist as they were right. requested to do. And maybe, maybe have, you know, explain the science behind the murder after you've discovered the body. Yeah. Oh, and then we could have Shepard going, huh? Huh? That's why we comply with regulations, Zeitman. Uh-huh. <laughs> Put that freaking tape in the furnace next time, you yeah. jag off. That's what I expected from a scientist from a neutral country. Well, yeah, I mean, they're they're going for the whole almost like you know the German scientist defecting and doing the man again. The the H bomb comes up at at a couple of points. Like where this is the new Manhattan Project that they're doing here underground, and they've got the this you know this European scientist who's sort of the calling all the shots, and he's got strange ways. I don't need to dispose of my tape. I'm in charge here. I just throw them away. It's they don't bother with regulation. Brian, what 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 did what were your final thoughts about about Gog? How did how did it leave you? Well, Gog took an hour and twenty minutes away from my life, so I have that to thank for. <laughs> but that's not even counting this podcast. Wait, what? This podcast takes time? Oh, come on, guys! No, uh, this was a fun movie to riff with my girlfriend over Skype, and I had a really good time making fun of it because there's so much to make fun of, too many details that I completely forgot about while recording, like um. Uh, things I still can't remember. Little tiny moments like incinerating the uh, the tape and the hammer trip, which is my favorite thing in all of cinema now, <laughs> because he steps on it and it moves over a little bit. And it's any normal person would look down and say, "Oh crap, there's a hammer. I'm so sorry, hammer, that I stepped on you." But no, he collapses onto the hammer, <laughs> apropos of nothing. If he had disposed of that hammer in the proper way, as as required by regulations, he would not be dead today. I. It's funny. I had that same feeling. Um, Brian about about riffing that I, I just watching it I felt like why am I watching this movie and there aren't people telling jokes mm-hmm. over it because mm-hmm. it feels like one of those movies the opening credits I started to think of things that I could say to oh, over the opening credits mm-hmm. uh, so yeah yeah but uh, alas I, I don't believe this has ever been uh, rift in that way. So yet, it's well, the reason for that is that whole. I mean, it, my my view on this was that it was almost fun, like it came so close to being fun because it has the goofy robots, it has robots. you know the, the rampant the robots. Sorry, I definitely no robots in this. Robo no. robot or please. robot should be your next podcast. You have okay. to determine whether the robot is a robot is a robot or a robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it had the goofy robots. It had the you know the the broadly drawn characters. Actually, had. I thought pretty good acting uniformly throughout the thing. Yeah. Surprisingly, I mean, it certainly didn't deserve the the level of acting that it got. Um, but it's just that thirty five minute section of the science lecture yeah. is such a buzzkill. And if they had figured out a way to spread that out a little more evenly, I think I probably would have actually really enjoyed the movie, and I would consider it something worth. Uh, you know, pointing out as something that people should look into, like uh, Frankenstein meets the space monster, for instance. Mm-hmm. But, oh yeah. I, I just I got so bored during that part that by the time it came time to kill off all the scientists, I was like, eh, yeah, whatever. I I <laughs> wished they were all dead a long time ago. Glenn, what's your judgment on Gog? I uh, I enjoyed this film. Um, I think as much as anyone could. Uh, I it, it had, <laughs> as I've said, it had so much potential, and it was so it was so earnest, and it was so. 
Like it, everything was in the middle. It wasn't low budget. It was some budget, right? Like there, some parts were extremely <laughs> some low budget. budget. Well, that's it was, a very vague they, category. Glenn. They made some effort. They I mean, had they seventy-five built, cents. They built sets and machines. <laughs> or they tried to make fifty million dollars. They tried to make things look like things, but it's like I think, like, <laughs> as opposed to just being like things that look like other things, and the things that they fail to look like things, oh. they just put signs over. It had such a veneer of almost being a funny, stupid film that was actually kind of good, but it didn't reach that bar. So, like, it reminded me a lot of Forbidden Planet, because even, like, the color scheme and kind of this, yeah. you know, way, the time period and everything, I kept looking for Leslie Nielsen to appear, but there was nothing actually interesting about the movie in the end. It was like they threw had these sets and actors and words and people doing stuff and ideas and it was like, okay, that's done now, and so I enjoyed it. It was it was a, it was a hoot. Leslie Nielsen was flying the, ba- the, the balsa wood plane. That's so right. That's what he was doing. David, what's your judgment on Gog? If I had a show that riffed movies, this is a movie I would riff. Uh, but it is. It is fun. It's, you know, it's a good story underneath all of it. Um, I, I could see mining Hundreds it for... of feet under the ground <laughs> where only H-bombs can reach. At least level five. Um, you know, and hey, the Coke machine. I want the Coke machine to come to life. I mean, That's there's a, cool a whole machine. thing in there. It'll just be shooting out um, bottles. It's third it's, robot. It could be pushing yeah, no bottles out high in speed. there, Glenn. The delivery man can't find the place. I think we <laughs> established that. I, you know, probably about 80% of my notes are lines that I would use in like a mystery <laughs> science theater because it, it just kept feeding all of these things. Like, you know, there's one point where, uh, you know, a whole bunch of them are smoking as they're talking and someone says, we have in our midst a clever calculating killer. And I went, nicotine. Mm. You know, it's, I mean, it's so easy. And, and, uh, yeah, I would love to riff this movie. I do have a note here that just says calisthenics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, yeah, I just think, I think that science lecture portion is going to be hard. That's going to be rough sledding as far as coming well, up with riffs. I don't know. That, that would be, that would be part of where you sort of trim out because they always trimmed out stuff from the movies to make oh, room for the go. But then you can't appreciate the, the the, all of the weaponry and the plant spike and everything. In, unless you know about red filtered isotopes, how can you possibly appreciate <laughs> Red filtered isotopes. And you, you clearly can't, the- uh, can't cut out the 30 second shots of the sun. No, yeah. <laughs> decided to feature for some solar reason. Solar power is important. What are you talking Sun's about? A, Look, solar flares. That's right. Yes. I felt like I was watching Tree of Life for a second. Ah, very nice, Brian. The helioscope is like you know. It's he's also watching it like he's watching a live picture from the sun when it's actually this you know processed <laughs> with the with the main body of the sun blocked so that you can see the. Yes, yeah. I see the corona. That uh-huh. was good science, though. Yeah. Yes, oh, that sure. was actually one of the few things that was oh, sure, right up. out of a science lecture. They yep. did a good science. Good science, guys. Wow. Well, there it is. It's Gog. I, I would I would say watch it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I would say if you're you're the kind of person who who likes to make jokes while the movie is playing or has friends with you who you like will that have plenty of time. or has friends. Period. That was my problem, I think. There was nobody to riff with. If there had been somebody Aww. nearby whom I could have riffed this with, I might have enjoyed it more. Yeah, yeah I but, agree. But yeah, I mean, if if you've watched The Core, surely you I have watch not watched this. The Core. If you've gotten through any of the other films we've done on this... Well, that I have done. You know. Yeah, go ahead and watch this. 
This is a second level movie where if you're a fan of bad movies, I will not you go with you. No, go to the second level. No. I walk right into it. That is why when you asked me, will you will you go watch Gog with me? I said no. I'm not going because this is a second level movie. Brian, Brian don't you know the second level is the only area where nobody works with isotopes? That's right. You know, you go see a second level movie and you come out and half of your face is old. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, the, I forget I liked, what my point was. I forget my, what I, my I, point I like this, this is so much better than Zardoz. I didn't feel like the delight uh, that I, I felt know. with Frankenstein meets the space monster where it was mm. both. It was kind of campy and kind of incompetent. This felt <laughs> boringly competent. Um, true. Earnest. Right, scientifically earnest, and right. yet had a story that was actually kind of interesting. Yeah, which is yeah, a weird yeah. combination, but not not. I I I was sort of giddy while I watched Frankenstein meets the Space Monster, and here I was just sort of like, "Yep, this is one of those movies. It's a '50s science fiction movie." This, this not movie could have used a butt I party. Is the problem, or butt parties for that matter? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's time to wrap up the 1950s rocket surgery. <laughs> That's it for Gog, however. I'd like to thank my guests for being here. Brian Hamilton, science is never frightening. Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, finally laying us off so I can have my Wi-Fi not kill me now. You're welcome. Glenn Fleischman, at this intensity, sound can kill. Well, you know, I'm going to go out right now and get a pair of those high-waisted Dr. Zeitman zoot suit pants and put them on, Jason. It's going to be great. Nice. David Lore, sun never sets in space. I'm getting impulses from an outside source. Look out. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve Lutz, it's all handled by robot power. Jason, you know how I feel now after talking with you about this movie for like an hour and a half? Radiant. <laughs> well, and thanks to everybody out there for listening to this edition of Rocket Surgery. If you pull out the pull safety, the safety rod, rod, it'll explode, Jason. Don't do it. Uh, it can only be open from the inside. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.